Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a guest that I think we're going to be learning about the experience of going at it, of uh, perhaps not having the, the outcome that was desired, and then going at it again and really hitting it out of the park. So I guess uh, without further ado, Amar Hanspal, welcome to the show today. Alejandro, thank you for having me. So originally you were born in the eastern part of India and then moved quite a bit. So how was life growing up there? Uh, different than it is uh, in the United States. I would say, uh, you know, my uh, dad was uh, someone that had to uh, travel a lot for business. And uh, in India, the community kind of sort of surrounds you and supports you. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely challenges you as you, you you meet people from India, certainly education, uh, there's a huge emphasis on that. And it's generally the way people rise out of the middle class and, and try and find their way to, uh, you know, better fortune. So huge emphasis on education, some emphasis on sport. It was a you know, wonderful learning experience. And uh, I, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, I, I was able to absorb all of that culture you know, before I moved to the United States. And, you know, one thing that is interesting, I, I've interviewed quite a lot of, of uh, entrepreneurs from India, and almost all of them have the engineering background. I think that that, that gives them an edge. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, why do you think the engineering and the problem solving is so ingrained in the, in the culture? It's a really good question. I, I'd say two things. One, you know, when you're growing up, um, you really are, uh, your family expects you to pursue either one of uh, one or the other uh, paths in terms of employment. You either become an engineer or you become a doctor. And anything else, when at least in the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, was not considered, you know, like a big success. So there was a sort of inbuilt pressure to sort of pick your uh, pick your path early. And I think for me, I certainly I enjoy being around people, but I just, if you have a passion for math, you kind of go down the engineering route. And I think uh, there's something, I'm, I'm not sure I can analyze beyond uh, that, why uh, engineering is um, uh, suits certain people in India a lot more. There's something very logical and uh, it is some sort of reasoning 
I have not studied it enough, whether it's genetic or cultural or whatever, but there's certainly a lot of engineers around you at all times to learn from. And I think, you know, just like Silicon Valley, uh, entrepreneurs learn from entrepreneurs, I guess, you know, in India, engineers learn from engineers. And I guess, uh, you know, talking about engineers, I mean, I find that that being an entrepreneur is all about finding opportunity where others perhaps are seeing problems, but having that engineering background, you know, to a certain degree, it helps you to find problems, break them down into smaller problems and really tackle them. So uh, how would you say that perhaps, you know, that engineering background has helped you, you know, along the way? I, I agree with your, actually, I think that's a really good summary of what being an entrepreneur is. I mean, we read about or hear about entrepreneurism as like this big hero's journey, like, you're cracking this uh, very difficult problem or you have this eureka moment. But in reality, it is a lot of smaller problems that you tackle uh, every day. And so you kind of increment your way to uh, to success. I mean, I used to say this and to, to people around me uh, at my previous company that most overnight successes are like seven to 10 years in the making. And all those seven to 10 years are consumed by solving a series of smaller problems. And uh, yeah, the engineer's mindset always kind of lets you step back from the machine and say, well, what can I improve here? You know, why is this not working? And sort of try and work backwards, whether it is, you know, go to market is taking too long or, you know, that you always kind of try and almost debug every problem that you run into, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, even as you're constructing a market. You know, you're solving ambiguity sort of like a incrementally through the through the fog. You're trying to get it clearer. Got it. So so you obviously uh, eventually came to the U.S. You came here to do your your master's degree and uh, you came to the U.S., which is quite a different culture. So, uh, you know, what was it? Was it shocking for you? I would say my first three months here was, were quite a, a shock to sort of uh, assimilate, you know, but there were the kindness of strangers, uh, this uh, roommate. Uh, well, the wonderful thing about coming to the U.S. is it is such a multicultural society and certainly universities, um, they, they have this microcosm of people with so many different, from so many different backgrounds in one place. And uh, while it was a little bit of a shock, certainly coming from a, from an in from India and in the community I'd grown up in for the for the first twenty first twenty one years of my life, it it was uh, one of these experiences where you know how the expression goes no pain no gain yeah. like getting into an unfamiliar situation and having to very quickly figure out where all the things are and how you get certain things done actually was. Uh, it, a thing that grew me very quickly, and again, it was the kindness of strangers that were patient with me, that helped me see the ropes, that helped me get through it. But um, you know, I think this was a it was a wonderful experience. That's amazing. You know, that reminds me to how people say that when you're feeling comfortable and when you think that the, that a decision is comfortable is probably not the right one. That is all about exactly. finding you know where you are on in an uncomfortable transition or situation because that ultimately is going to help you grow. Right, exactly. So, so obviously for you, uh, California then in 87, and then you ended up joining, you know, your, your first job. You know, it was uh, probably one that would really shape you, and that was Autodesk. So, so right. tell us about this experience. Yeah, so I, I, I got to Autodesk through actually in the, when I was in the university, one of my summer projects, uh, I ended up working with a bunch of high-energy physicists who were designing an experiment to um, what 
today you you know you has become the large hadron collider but in those days they were designing an experiment uh, at fermilab to try and create these you know very sophisticated instruments to detect particles and they needed a mechanical engineer on staff and I was a mechanical engineer but um, I ended up uh, in terms of trying to solve their problems started to use CAD in and on on that project and one thing led to another and when I came west Autodesk and its program that many people have heard of called AutoCAD was one of the programs I had used on that project and I ended up visiting them um, and uh, it, maybe it was the first time I crossed the Golden Gate Bridge or the people I interacted with in that company. Um, and uh, it was just such a wonderful, inspiring uh, sort of day that I had um, meeting all these people that were convinced that they were going to change the world using the PC and creating all these sophisticated tools for engineers and architects. I just was hooked from day one and I started in the company um, 1987, when it was just about 250 people, they just crossed. You know, in those day, in these days, we would call it they were a Series C or Series D kind of company. They had traction, had about 50 million in revenue, but they had so many things to figure out uh, in terms of scaling. And I started on the technical support side of things, and then over the next 12 years, that. Uh, that sort of experience of working with customers led me to a job in marketing and product management. And then I did one project after another. And, and that was sort of a very formative experience of starting to understand how you take what are problems for customers, synthesize them into products, and then take products and sort of try and construct a business around them. You know, in those 12 years, I started seeing that pattern and, uh, you know, I think the culture that was at Autodesk was also a very formative experience for me. And so that sort of was a, you know, very, very defining phase from 87 to 99 um, before I left to try and build a company uh, on my own. Well, let's talk about that. So, uh, so at what point do you say, all right, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a shot at this and, and see how it goes. So what was that? And, what was that idea? What were you looking to tackle? And, and how did you, you know, give the notice and bring the idea to life? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that in the, the early days at Autodesk that struck me was, um, you know, how the PC had become a platform for people to launch businesses and sort of reimagine how things uh, could be done and the people that could do them. And so when the internet uh, showed up uh, in the mid 90s and the browser became more capable and we started looking at more and more of the um not just e from an e-commerce perspective but from a business work process perspective what could be done in connecting people across the internet it started feeling like a very compelling environment on which you could reimagine businesses and so you know at, at my uh, role at Autodesk, had been working on sort of the core product of the company, which is AutoCAD and taking it forward to more and more customers. But, you know, when you talk to those customers, there were certain problems that they would share that you could see couldn't really be done on the PC platform. Um, for example, you know, we would build engineering software for them that they could use to, let's say, create a machine. 
But then uh, when they were trying to actually figure out how to make that machine and find suppliers or find people who could uh, create those components that they had designed, you know, that was not a problem that we could solve for them on the on the PC platform. But you could look at the internet and say, well, the internet is a place where you could go solve that problem. And so out of that thinking came this uh, company that uh, two colleagues of mine uh, and I had uh, started writing the business plan around. We call the company Red Spark, and our idea today we would call it Air CNC <laughs> as, a, as a joke. But the idea was, hey, can we match buyers and sellers? You know, people who want to lease uh, uh, production capacity and find suppliers who can make those components and parts, and suppliers and people who have that capacity, you know, sort of meet them, match them over the internet, you know, so. In, those days, they would call it a B2B exchange. But that was the original idea we went off in 99 and uh, raised funding for. And, you know, then we had a, a professional CEO run the company and you know, go off and pursue that dream for two and a half years. Unfortunately, we didn't completely succeed in uh, making it uh, making it work. But, uh, you know, the idea was great. And the I still till today call it my $17 million MBA because, you know, that was how much capital we raised. and. I learned a ton in, the, in those two and a half years. And and obviously, when when you do a company, it's it's also a big part of it is being at the right time in history. And you know, this was yes. a time where the market was a bit shaky uh, when you know yes. for technology companies. So I guess, uh, what what did you learn about timing? Um, actually, I don't. I, I think what I learned about timing is uh, it, it's the. I mean, you cannot predict when and where the wave hits. So what you have to do is find a way to stay in the water. And what, you know, just taking that metaphor and making it more real is, you know, I think what, one of the mistakes that entrepreneurs, uh, and certainly we did in those days, can make is they are so convinced about how right your idea is that you are, you build your company for like perfect execution, which means you start spending money as if the market was already there. And, and the reality is you just have to be more patient and uh, try and watch for signals against which, because you also can't be too late, because if you're too late and the wave passes you, you know, then, then you're, you're not able to take advantage of opportunity. And I think what I learned about timing is while you can't predict it, you can certainly try and prepare yourself for it a little bit better. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you, you, you certainly don't try and, uh, you know, uh, go, go in with rose colored glasses into every opportunity. You have to be a little bit more iterative, a little bit more cautious in terms of the way you, you know, you go after that. Got it. And obviously in this case, the outcome was not as, uh, was not as expected. So the, mm -hmm. so you guys ended up having to shut down the business. And I know that mm -hmm. perhaps for you in your career, Maybe that was one of the uh, most painful uh, experiences that you had to to encounter. So, so tell us about that day where you guys decided to pull the plug on this. Yeah, I, I you know, so it uh, the, the there were two sides to that uh, that experience. You know, one I would say huge sadness in. Uh, so let, let, let's let's rewind a little bit. I mean. In where we were was uh, two and a half years into the project, we were starting to get down to you know, lower levels of cash. We needed to raise more money. And as we went out and tested the market, clearly we didn't have enough traction for um, 
for the investors, especially since the bubble had burst, they were really looking for uh, much, much uh, clearer black and white successes. So it was just the reality, just the facts that raising money was going to be hard. So we had a, a plan B, which was to, you know, sort of starve almost nuclear winter and try and last out until the other side. But, you know, at that point, starvation would have meant that we wouldn't have been able to really, um, you know, make our customers successful, realize the actual um, the value propositions for them. And you know, it was just would feel like a selfish way to just keep a company going. And even that would, uh, would was there was no certainty. And so I think sometimes you just decide, look, you know what, doing the right thing might be hard, but it's the better thing to do. And so. After a board meeting, um, we got the, the feedback from them about sort of the choices we had, and we chose uh, to shut the company down. It was it was a sad day, but you know people were proud of what uh, we had accomplished, and I think almost everybody in that organization went on to do good things, and uh, you know I would not have traded those two and a half years for anything. I completely can understand that, and. And obviously, you know, failures are, you know, whether it is on shutting down the business or an initiative that didn't pan out as, as, as one was hoping or whatever that is, it's just going to get you closer to success because it's always learnings that you're able to, to embrace. Uh, I guess the, the tricky part here, especially for entrepreneurs, is when they are not able to detach themselves from, from that outcome, I would say emotionally. And when they start to think that a failure means that they are a failure themselves, yeah. which I think mm-hmm. that is not the way to look at it. So I guess in this in this specific situation for you, how were you able to, let's say, detach yourself and really be able to bounce back and continue moving forward after this? Look, I, I would be lying if it didn't if I told you that it didn't take like a few days or weeks to sort of just get over the hangover of that thing not having worked out because it was such a passion project and something that, you know, we had all worked hard to do. But I mean, I think you summarized it well, you know, when you step back from it and you look at the lessons learned, um, you try and think about the things that you could, um, it goes back to no pain, no gain. So here is pain. Uh, It's very painful. You look back and try and uh, understand why did the company not work? And in that case, I think we came up with maybe three things that, uh, or that I would say, let's do it differently. You know, one of them was being very clear about the problem that you're solving for the customer early on in the, in the, in the, in, so you can say, I'm going to do a B2B exchange, but you have to get down much narrower, like which customer, which kind of uh, project they're working on, like try and get more specifics. I think you walk away with a lesson about how do you target customers? You walk away with a lesson about how do you spend money or maybe how do you grow the business or grow the spend behind customer traction? You know, that would be sort of the other thing. And the third one was, I was <laughs> still go back and I really realized the importance of sales, uh, not from the perspective of, listen, it's the, it's like what, you know, of course, cash is the oxygen of any young company, but you start to realize that when you ask a customer to spend money with you, it is the best litmus test for whether you have the right value proposition, whether you've communicated the right value proposition, and whether you're solving a valuable enough problem for them in the first place. 
it's the best way to get clarity. And so I started understanding uh, that creating a world-class sales organization and a go-to-market organization was key. And I think those three lessons stuck with me to this day. And um, I think I, that's that's what I rebounded with. And after this experience, you go back to Autodesk. So uh, yes. tell us, you know, what happened? So you call your buddies back and you say, hey, guys, take me back. Or what happened there? I Actually, they called me. So <laughs> I, I wasn't like, you know, I'd left Autodesk. And I thought, you know, that uh, while I certainly found the markets that, you know, I've spent my life in two vertical industries. You know, one is the building and construction industry and the other is manufacturing. And I find that those universes of, you know, building physical things very appealing. I had not thought about going back to, to Autodesk, but um, Carl Bass, who became the CEO of Autodesk in 2006, um, when was sort of going back to Autodesk in 2002 from his uh, venture that he had uh, he had uh, done and uh, was putting the team together that he thought would help him uh, sort of build, rebuild the business of the company and 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 grow help grow the company and uh, he called me he had a project in mind and i looked at the project i mean i have a tremendous amount of respect for carl and uh, the people that he surrounded himself with and uh, that's kind of why i went back it was not hey take me back it was just that there was a new crew coming in place and they were going to go do great things and i wanted to be a part of that and talking about the journey you scale up on the ranks all the way to co-ceo wow yeah yeah, I was, I mean, I was, it was a, I get worked with some wonderful people over the years and got to work on uh, some great projects. And as, as things turned out, kind of, you know, I went back to Autodesk and they gave me a young business at that time they had acquired that was doing about 5 million in, uh, in, in revenue. And uh, what it was a, a internet business at that time. And they wanted to kind of show that they could, uh, or, or test whether they could grow internet businesses. And, I grew that to 50 million in four years, uh, along with a very you know, talented team. I got kicked upstairs and then did that project and the next project. And, you know, you, I, I just kind of tried to focus on whatever they handed me and work on that project. And one thing led to another. And, uh, yeah, I was a co-CEO in 2006. How many, how many people did you have uh, at the peak with Autodesk under you? How many? Uh, so the job is when I was co-CEO, there was 10,000 people in the company, but the job prior to that, which was leading the product organization, I had about 3,000 people in the company. Wow. Or in that, or in that group. And I guess you grew the company market cap by nearly 5 billion. I mean, I'm getting dizzy with all the zeros. <laughs> so uh, I, guess, yeah. I guess let's talk about leadership here. So when you're, yes. when you're obviously uh, managing and, and, and leading such a big team, I think that you being able to transform yourself as well as a leader, I think is, is critical. So, so how did you go about doing that? It, it, you know, it is a little bit of, uh, of kind of applying the engineering mindset to myself. So I think you kind of look at it and say, what is it that I, uh, what is it that I need to uh, be good at in order to succeed at what they're handing me? So, you know, as your scope, increases or as your role expands and you have to start figuring out the parts of it that you can take forward and the parts of it that you uh, you need to go acquire and sometimes those skills are 
can be described as a functional expertise. Like, you know, the higher I got in the company, the more financial knowledge I had to have as compared to when I first started. Yeah, some things are fungible. You know, leading people is leading people, but you start to then after, you know, as they say, you know, not just now manage people, but you manage people who manage people. And then your, your ability to coach becomes more emphasized. And you know, it's, it's a little bit of a journey. I think the closest analogy I've found is that, and I, I have learned a lot by looking at people who, um, you know, run sporting uh, teams and go from individual players to maybe captains of teams to assistant coaches to being coaches and that, you know, your your responsibility and your skill set starts having to become more strategic in nature. So you're always thinking outside in. As a manager, you might be thinking inside out, like what do I need to do to ship this product on time? As a leader of a larger organization, you're thinking, well, what, how do I find the next 400 million to grow this company? So, you know, you start thinking more outside in more strategic, and you start really trying to understand how you put together a world-class team that can pull off that strategy. And so, you know, I, I kept, the other thing that really helped me was I would just keep meeting people who had been in roles similar to mine and asking them questions about, like, so, okay, well, how would you do this? And, you know, what, and, and just trying to learn from them. So it seems that you were able to master listening. You know, being able to ask the right questions and then also answer or, 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 or then also really be able to process the answers and really be able to, to go about potential patterns uh, between those answers. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? About, about that? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I, I heard um, someone very wise once told me is that, you know, you learn uh, not just by, you know, you don't just learn positive things by watching other people or talking to them and listening to them. You also start figuring out what you shouldn't do by watching other people. So in terms of like when I have these interactions with with people, um, I would listen to their answers um, and then sometimes and, and ask them habits about um, how they like, how do they structure their, let's say you're you know trying to um, as you're becoming closer and closer to like the, the sea level, you're trying to understand how you best structure your day, how you, you know, hire people, how you fire people. And, you know, you'd get, I'd ask these questions to uh, people in the industry that I'd run across and certainly learned a lot from people like Carl um, and others, but then I'd run across other people in the industry who would give me answers and things would stick with me that, you know what, actually, I will never, ever do that. So that's actually, in, in a weird way, mentoring, but in a, in the reverse way that you also learn that, hey, listen, no matter where I go, I will never, ever do, you know, this kind of behavior. So um, listening is definitely, I mean, I think at the end of the day, Alejandro, the, the, the key thing that you need to have is curiosity. And curiosity, whether you're solving a problem or trying to improve yourself um, or try and serve a customer, being genuinely interested in figuring out and, and understanding and having an actual liking for that process is really key to your, you know, your own growth and, and eventual ability to, to, to do what it takes. Got it. And I guess uh, another, another point in time for you that really shaped you and, 
and also your leadership and the way that you're viewing things is, you know, after this incredible, you know, time at, at Autodesk and, and seeing this unbelievable growth because it was on a tear, the, the business, you know, from the minute that you took the reins to the minute that, that you were, you know, like uh, on to your, to your next uh, phase. You know, there were obviously some, some uh, uh, I would say that, that maybe disagreements, uh, perhaps at a strategic level. Uh, and I'm sure that for you, maybe, you know, you were a little bit disappointed or, or, or maybe like really disappointed. But I guess, uh, how did you deal with that? And, and obviously that led to, to founding, you know, like your biggest success story, you know, as an entrepreneur. But, but tell us about this. Yeah. So I, I, look, I had and I continue to have a real passion for the world of uh, physical things. You know, like, you know, at, at Autodesk, I had this incredible sense of pride that, uh, you know, if you landed at San Francisco International Airport or London Heathrow Terminal 2 or you drove a Tesla and you watched a, a, a movie like Avatar, you know, all those things were created by customers of Autodesk and they sort of, you know, actively shaped the world that we were living in. And I had real passion for that. And, you know, I, I just wanted to drive that forward. I think, the, you know, the, the um, people who are figuring out how to house and transport and, and clothe and do all the things that the, the world needs uh, are doing noble things. And, you know, I thought uh, that being able to serve them with software was a real privilege. And I always wanted to, you know, see what I could do to with the Autodesk platform to try and drive that forward. And, uh, you know, I strongly believed in innovation being the growth vector for the company. And I, I uh, shared this uh, maybe early in the podcast that um, you always think about the combination of platforms and uh, business models being the way in which companies are created or destroyed if they don't respond to that that change. And I really thought that the growth of uh, the arrival of the cloud as a technology platform and uh, subscription or SaaS as a business model you know, really enabled um, new businesses. And I mean, that was my vision for the company. At some point around, uh, you know, I would say 2016, Autodesk encountered an activist investor and it set different priorities for the company. And so uh, I ended up leaving as a result. Uh, I was obviously disappointed um, because I really I saw what was possible, both technically and, and, and uh, what the world, uh, how much could be accomplished with, uh, how many problems remain unsolved and how many opportunities uh, were in front of the company. Uh, but listen, you know, every, I, I think it took me again a couple of months to sort of dwell. My family and uh, friends were really helpful in uh, helping me find my feet. And what I really was able to then spend the next year thinking about was, you know, which one of those problems that had been in front of me or becoming apparent was I most sort of passionate about and, you know, uh, you know, every, uh, so this, this was, I saw this ultimately as an opportunity to sort of, one analogy I've used is I'd worked on the equivalent of renovating a house and, you know, somebody else's house and making it better. And here I had an opportunity to sort of, you know, create something from the ground up. And I thought, hey, this is a huge, uh, huge uh, opportunity to go, you know, express everything I believed in and build it from, you know, from the ground up. And so. That's what I focused on. Let's talk about then, Amara, this transition, because mm -hmm. once you left uh, Autodesk, it took you about a year to really launch uh, Bright Machines. And mm -hmm. and I'm sure that, 
you were, you know, obviously validating some ideas, you know, taking a look at, you know, potential markets that you could go in and, and address certain gaps. So how was this transition for you? Let's say once you were able to to really get your, your eyes, you know, out of the weeds and take a look and say, okay, now I need to know, you know, what I want to do next. Uh, how did you go about that process? How did you go about doing some, some type of validations and then, you know, coming to yeah. the point where you said, this is it, this is what I want to execute, and this is how I want to go about it. Right. Uh, so I, I think um, I've, I go back to an earlier point in this conversation. I tried to listen. So I was fortunate that my colleagues connected me with people in, uh, who, in venture capital and private equity and other sort of vantage points and I got to meet them and talk to them and take a look at some of their companies and speak with some entrepreneurs and just, you know, keep asking questions and keep listening and starting to learn from you know, some of those were actually, you know, opportunities that they wanted me to see if I wanted to be a part of, but it all led to sort of trying to think about like, what is going on right now in the, in the industry. And the one question that I used to keep asking myself on those drives uh, to and from all these uh, people was, what is this telling me about what will be true in five to 10 years from now? So, you know, if you're trying to skate to where the puck is going, in some ways you're trying to, from these conversations, try and understand how, how will the, what is my point of view in, in what the world might look like um, in that time frame? And in some ways, one way for me to answer that question was to look back at the previous 10 years and say, well, if I had was able to rewind and go back 10 years ago, what would I, what dots would I have connected? And, you know, I would say in 10 years from, let's say in the mid 2000s, I would have seen, you know, the growth of databases, the improvement in internet bandwidth and all this kind of stuff. And the growth, the early parts of Salesforce and worked and said, look, SaaS is going to be this next big transformative force in enterprise software. And, you know, that turned out to be the case. So if hindsight was 2020, that's what that would have told me. This time around, you know, every conversation I was having was leading me to recognize that, you know, the, the growth of data, growth of machine learning technology, um, there were very fundamental forces in, in re what you could use to redefine the future. But also one of the most fundamental things you could recognize was you know, we spent 50, 60, 70 years building software based on the fact that computers could count. But now you could build software based on the fact that computers can see and sense as well. So the growth of machine vision and sensors. <clears throat> so I ended up with a fundamental assertion or belief on what the future um, stack and, and what would be a big driving force for five to eight years would be. And then I started finding, trying to see what opportunities you could pursue if that, as that technical stack becomes more and more mature. Got it. So then let's talk about landing, you know, really on the, on the idea of, of bright machines, you know, really being, you know, what you wanted to go after and, and how did you go about, you know, let's say putting the band together and, and getting out there and making it happen? Yeah. So I, I mean, I can't take credit for, putting the band together because the way Bright Machines came about was it was a happy collision of uh, two independent atoms to form this molecule. You know, one was, you know, from the thought process I just shared with you that 
um, kind of walked away with the idea that uh, the way people were managing factories, you know, these days, you know, if you go to a factory, you'd see still a lot of labor involved in constructing products. Um, and there's automation, certainly on factory floors, but still, when you think about how your smart products are made, there's thousands of people involved in assembling those products. And so you start thinking about how do you make this, that if machine vision and all these things become true, wouldn't factories look more like data centers in the future? That just the path that data centers have gone through where 20 years ago, they were highly manual. Everything was set up and configured manually. To now everything is managed behind the glass. Couldn't you think how that factories would be managed that way? So that was, I would say, the thought I was walking around with in my head. Maybe the CTO of the company now also had that sort of belief. And uh, on the other side, uh, there was a venture capitalist who had looked at this problem of uh, as the demand for smart products grows, there's simply not enough labor in the world to make those smart products. And so there's going to be a more secular shift in demand for automation. And that automation in the form of robotics and things like that is not very scalable today. And then that, that PC's name is Lior Susan at Eclipse Ventures. And Lior and I met, we were connected by uh, somebody um, that we both know. And uh, we met for lunch and he started explaining his idea to me and uh, his assertion, and and then that's that's how Bright Machines came about. Is that we just violently agreed from two different perspectives that this was a good idea to go to go make happen. And what a way to to violently agree, as as you mentioned, because you guys actually did one of the largest Series A's that I've seen in a while. So so tell us about this. Yeah, we you know we're fortunate. Look, I think we um, one thing that. Uh, our investors really believed in is that the size of this market or the size of the disruption, you know, manufacturing is like a $3.2 trillion industry. The, the available market was very large. And that one thing we were able to start the company with was a, um, uh, a carve out of a team inside a electronics manufacturer that had been thinking about an automation approach and it'd be trying to do it. And, and so we started the company by taking that team and, and uh, creating infrastructure to scale their, their efforts. So we started with expertise. We started with a huge opportunity and we started with the, uh, you know, some, a customer, which was actually Flex that signed up for using the expertise and, and capabilities that, that we were putting in place. So that combination, I think, is what uh, gave our investors uh, confidence, and you know, we were fortunate in getting what we got. Because how much? How much have you guys raised so far? Uh, almost two hundred million. Almost two hundred million. Wow! And I've also seen that the you know the the growth of the business has been also remarkable, especially when it comes to to employees. I think that in the last twenty four months, according to LinkedIn, you guys have. A, have grown the business. I mean, in terms of employees, like like a thousand percent. So when you're growing like that and adding so many people so fast, how do you go about keeping the culture uh, intact? Yeah, I, I think, well, we're building the culture and the culture that we're trying to put in place is this combination of manufacturing, deep manufacturing domain knowledge and software expertise. 
um, and while doing that, trying to keep the customer at the center. You know, I would say, look, culture is a, is a hard thing to um, put your finger on. But what I've learned is the people you, you uh, hire and empower are probably the single biggest factor in uh, determining your culture. You know, Ben Horowitz put out this book, you know, what you see is what you do is who you are. And the doing is done really by the people that you, you pick. And so one of the things in growing the company that I've, we've been trying to be very, very focused on is that the people coming into the company really actually care about the problem that we're trying to solve, that they're not here because it's a cool company, because this sounds good, or we raise that much money, but that they actually care about the problem we're going to solve. Because, you know, these problems can take, they, you know this in a startup, something can be, um, there's no guarantee of like instant success. And so this could be a short haul, a medium haul, a long haul. And one of the things our culture has to do is sustain the focus on the customer problem. And that one filter has been, I think, the uh, the main way in which we try to make sure that we have the right culture. You were talking now, uh, Amar, about hiring. So, you know, one thing that, that just came up to me, you know, like when, when you were mentioning this is, I'm just wondering if, if obviously now you have your team and, and they're really involved at, at bringing on board people, but perhaps, you know, like when you're looking at uh, bringing, you know, like maybe like the top tier level, or maybe you're still involved, you know, with the, with the junior folks that are coming on, you know, there's ha there has to be one question where you're really paying attention to what that answer is going to be. What is that question? Yeah. I always ask, the, there's actually two, but I'll start with my favorite one, which is I always ask them their favorite project that they've worked on, like the one that they feel has been the one they've succeeded at the most and why. And I think, you know, you hear from people the things that they are motivated by. And so ultimately what I'm trying to understand is this person who is here, who's interviewing for this job, what is their fundamental motivation? Are they driven by the technology, the, the difficulty of the problem they're solving? They're here because they want to make a quick Buck, are they inspired just because they are of the people that they're surrounded with? And it's, a, you know, as long as the environment feels good, they, they can work on anything. So I think that pro question for me has always revealed what, you know, people, what, what, what keeps them, what makes them tick, what keeps them motivated. And that's the question I rely on. Got it. Got it. So I guess, uh, you know, one of the, um, I wanted to ask you here, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, you've, Incredible experience. I mean, now you're definitely killing it, you know, with, with Bright Machines. You've had the experience as well of uh, of really leading a very large organization with thousands of employees. And, and also you had your your really your really big, you know, a $17 million MBA of, uh, you know, not having the expected outcome. So I guess if you had the opportunity uh, here, Amar, of going back in time and having a chat with your younger self, you know, perhaps that younger Amar that was thinking about leaving Autodesk and, you know, that was this product, you know, manager and, and that was thinking about, you know, becoming an entrepreneur. If you had that opportunity to speak to that younger Amar uh, and give that younger Amar one piece of business advice before launching a business, knowing what you know now, what would that be and why? I would say find a problem that you really, really care about. Um, and because solving it, there's no, I think you use this expression, there is no straight line um, that, you know, from an entrepreneurial 
perspective, whether you use the term pivot or iteration or whatever, there is no straight line and uh, there is no fixed duration in which you know your dream will come true. So you have to have incredible patience and curiosity to get to the other side. And if you don't care about the problem you're solving, you know, really like intrinsically, it's very hard to have that sense of like sustaining yourself, you know, let alone when, you know, bad times hit or recession hits or, a, you know, you have a customer issue like that, having that sense of like, I really care about making this, getting to the other side of this. It, and because you really find the problem very compelling, you think it's going to do good in the world. You think, you know, it's just, uh, that, that that is what I would say. So find something that you really deeply care about to work on. Very cool. And for the folks that are listening, Amar, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, they can, uh, on Twitter, they can follow me. I'm at Amar Hanspal. And then uh, my email is amar.hanspal at brightmachine.com. Amazing. Well, Amar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. My pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.